God is so good. We have started a series on the parables of Jesus. We had our first uh, message from the parables last week. So we're, we're getting into the second parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. I want to share for a few minutes from this, a few minutes, every pastor that says a few minutes is lying. Okay, it's going to be more than a few minutes, I'm sorry. There's so much packed in to this parable, is just like there was the last one. I'm going to try to keep it focused, but if I get distracted and go off on rabbit trails, forgive me. Last week we learned and we talked about the parable of the seed and the soil, and from that we learned that everyone who hears the gospel is going to respond to it in one of Four ways. Everybody in this room will respond to the message that I share with you today in one of four ways. Everybody. This is, this is just the typical human response to the gospel when it's preached in any of its different forms. Either you're going to have a hard heart. By a hard heart, that means that you're going to love your sin so much that you're going to reject God's offer of forgiveness and freedom. Your heart's going to be hard to the gospel. It's just going to bounce off and you'll get nothing out of it. Or you're going to have a shallow heart. That means you'll receive the message, but the roots will never really get too deep in your heart. So when you come up against some kind of hardship or adversity or temptation, you're going to be prone to fall away. Or Jesus said when people hear the gospel, if they don't have a hard heart or a shallow heart, they're going to have a strangled heart. That means that they will hear the gospel and it will appear as if they are growing in the Lord, but then they will find that their love for this world and the things that this world provides and the money that this world offers will begin to choke the spiritual life out of it. But Jesus went on to say, there's a fourth way. There's a fourth way uh, that a a human heart will respond to the Word of God, to the Gospel message, like I'm going to be sharing with you today, and that's by having an open heart. An open heart that embraces the Gospel an open heart that's in which the embrace of the gospel begins to transform their lives as that gospel begins to produce fruit, changing them from the inside out, developing in them the character of Christ, helping them become more and more like Jesus. It's a process. It won't happen overnight. Uh, I've got fig trees that I planted two years ago. I'm still waiting for fruit. Okay? The drought nearly got them last year. They're growing a little bit this year, and I'm hoping in the next year or two, I'm actually going to see some fruit from it. But I've got to be patient while that fruit comes to, comes to fruition, if you will. But if the gospel takes roots, it's going to produce fruit in your life. Your life will be transformed. You will become more and more like Jesus. You will produce the fruit of the Spirit. That was last week. Let's get to this week's message. This week, we're going to be talking about the parable of the weeds. Weeds. Alabama's known for weeds. Thank you for those who cleaned out the flower beds this, uh, this week. I happened to mention it, mention it in passing in last week's sermon, and somebody went out there and cleaned the flower beds for us. I don't even know really who it was, but let me tell you, thank you for that. Anyway, in this parable, in this parable, what Jesus is doing is he is warning us to expect opposition. You know, every good thing in this world faces opposition, doesn't it? Jesus tells us that we ought to expect opposition as this gospel takes root in our lives, as we begin to live for Him, as we share His gospel message with other people, we can expect to face 
opposition all along the way. Now this parable is pretty straightforward, so there's not a whole lot of interpretation that has to go on. Jesus goes on later to explain this parable for us. So that's it's simple, if you will. It's simple, but it's profound, and we need to listen, we need to hear, and we need to take this message to heart because it has such application to our lives today. Let's read this passage together, and then we'll get right into the message this morning. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read 24 through 29 and then jump to verses 36 through 43. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Before we get to Jesus' interpretation or explanation for that parable, I just want to point out something to you that will help make sense of this parable. The weed that's mentioned here is a weed called bearded darnel. Bearded darnel. It's a ryegrass that looks a lot like wheat. It's a counterfeit wheat, if you will. And it was a common practice back in the day. If you had a rival, you would go and put those weeds in your rival's crops in order to disrupt him, to cause him some financial hurt. So this wasn't an uncommon practice. This weed was bearded darnel. It looked like wheat until until it grew to its its full height, and then it became apparent that it was a weed and not wheat. The wheat would stand, you would notice the, the difference in the heads primarily, the, the heads of the wheat would be full, producing lots of grain. The, the bearded darnel would begin to, to bow, and it would be nothing but little black seeds in it. But you wouldn't know the difference. You couldn't tell the difference until the weed and the wheat began to produce fruit. It's really important you see this in order to understand. Now, another thing about darnel I wanted you to know is that it was toxic to human beings. If you were to harvest the wheat and the wheat together without separating the two, it would it would, be, it would prove poisonous to those who ate the wheat products. Does that make sense? So you had to get rid of the, wheat, the weeds in order to have a good wheat crop. Alright, let's get on to what Jesus uh, gave us by way of explanation. Verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to Him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus answered, Follow this now. He's he's giving us the explanation. Make sure you understand what each of these things stands for. The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom? We are. Those of us that have embraced the gospel and are living by its truths and its power. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Who is that? Who are the sons of the evil one? Those who are outside the kingdom of God. Those who have not embraced the gospel and been transformed by it. 
the harvest, excuse me, uh, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Have we gotten to the end of the age yet? No, that still lies ahead of us. Right? The restoration, time of restoration still lies ahead of us. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. In that period of restoration, there will be no sin, there will be no sinners, there will be no temptation. You get that? Jesus intends to weed His kingdom of all of those things. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. How many of you want to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father? This message is for us this morning. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, we love You and we thank You for the power of Your Word and I pray that You would give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear this morning. Spirit of God, open up our ears. Take the blinders off of our eyes. Open up our hearts to this truth and let it be planted deep in soil that's ready to be changed and transformed and and provide a root system for the Gospel to grow and transform us. Lord, I pray that You would have Your way with this Word today. I pray that You would say through me the things that need to be said. Nothing more, nothing less. May we be changed by this Word, I pray, as it comes to us through this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here are some things, basically four things. I'm going to point them out. I'm going to take a little bit of time on one point in particular. But these are basically four things that I hope that you learn from this parable as we seek to become more fruitful citizens in God's kingdom today and as we set our minds and hearts on being like the righteous who shine like the sun in the kingdom that's coming. All right, four things. First, expect opposition. Expect opposition. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. How many of you have been surprised at some of the people that opposed your journey with Christ? Why are you upset that I'm obeying Jesus now rather than you, Mr. Boss Man? Expect opposition. While the Lord, listen, while the Lord actively seeks to save you, and while the Lord actively seeks to use you to help Him rescue others with this Gospel message, we need to understand there is an enemy who will be constantly working against us. Constantly. We've got to never forget that we're at war. As Christ followers, we're at war. Life for us as Christ followers isn't a playground. It's a battlefield. We've got to understand that. We've got to expect opposition as we try to live for the Lord in this life and as we try to do the work of God in this world. We will face active opposition, sometimes passive opposition, which is sometimes harder to identify. But Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 6 when he tells us, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Are we supposed to fight this opposition? Confront the opposition in our own power? But we often do, don't we? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not the person that's opposing you. It's the spiritual power behind that person that's opposing you. 
Our problem is we want to take the battle to the person. And that's when we start to mess everything up, isn't it? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to expect opposition as we seek to live for the Lord. And we can expect the devil, we can expect Satan to do everything in his playbook to derail us, to distract us, to discourage us. We ought to expect Him to be relentless in His efforts to hinder the work of God in your life. How many of you were distracted this morning on your way to church? I mean, you had every reason to turn around and go back home or go somewhere else. But yet you find yourself here today. Trust me, the devil wants to prevent you from hearing another message. The devil wants to prevent you from having another experience with the Lord. The devil wants to prevent you from ever hearing about the Gospel of Christ again, and He will do everything He can to keep you from it. To keep it from changing you and transforming your life. He is ruthless in His attempts to prevent God from working in your life. Relentless and ruthless in His efforts to kill, steal, and destroy. So never be caught by surprise when the enemy opposes what God's trying to do in you and through you. Never be surprised by that. Never get caught by surprise. Expect opposition as you live for Christ. Expect opposition as you serve Christ for His glory here on the earth. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on that armor of God every day. Go ahead and read the rest of that chapter so you know what that means. I think John talked, uh, led some of the uh, ladies through the summer on this, so you guys ought to be ready to go for that. And no matter what, Keep living for the Lord. Keep serving God. Don't let the devil, don't let the devil hinder or stop what God has started in your life. 1 John 4 tells us this. We need to keep living for the Lord. We need to keep serving the Lord because of this. You belong to God. Say that with me. I belong to God. If you are a son of the, of the living God, a daughter of the King. This is true about you. You belong to God and you have defeated these enemies already in Christ. You have defeated the opposition that stands in front of you. God's Spirit is in you and more powerful than the one that's in the world. You rest in what Christ has done for you on the cross. You rest in His resurrection. You rest in the truth that His Spirit dwells inside your hearts to give you victory over whatever opposition might face you today. Second, you are to expect opposition, but you're also to develop discernment. Discernment. Oh, Lord. I pray for discernment every day. Probably, I, I know a lot of people are praying to be baptized with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And I know that a lot of people are praying earnestly that God would give them the gift of healing. I know that, God, that there are a lot of people who pray that God would give them the gift of miracles, of prophesying, all those wonderful gifts. But let me tell you what we need more than any of those, in my, per, my own personal opinion, discernment. We need discernment in this age that we live in. Just like a good farmer, should be able to tell the difference between bearded darnel and real wheat. Just like a good farmer ought to be able to tell what a good crop is from what a counterfeit crop is, 
We need to be able to tell the difference between what's true and what's false. We need to be able to tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong. That's called discernment. By discernment, what, I'm, what I mean is this. I mean the ability to decide between truth and error. The ability to decide between right and wrong. Basically this, in its sim- simplest form, simplest definition as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as the Bible is concerned is this. Biblical discernment is the ability to think biblically. Think biblically. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says it this way. Test everything. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. You can't do that unless you're thinking biblically. That's discernment. And the reason we need to learn to think biblically, the reason we need to develop discernment is because, precisely because the enemy is so good at counterfeiting. He is the master counterfeiter. He can make something that's so wicked and evil look so wonderful and good. He did it in the Garden of Eden and He's done it every day since to mankind. Tricked us into thinking that what He offers us is good when in reality it's a trap and it's, a po- it's poison and it's going to kill us. Satan is a master counterfeiter. He's, he loves to pretend to be something that he's not. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us this, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't come to us in his little red jumpsuit with a tail and a pitchfork. He comes to us as a man or a woman that we think is going to make me complete. He comes to us in the form of a teacher that sounds, it's it's scratching that itching in my ears, if you know what I'm talking about. He's so good at coming to us in a form that we didn't expect him to come in. Making something look good when in reality it's poisonous, it's toxic to our nature, to our character, sons of God, sons and daughters of God. And he likes to pretend, he likes to present his henchmen to us as helpers. He likes to present his henchmen to us as helpers, and he wants to present his lies to us as truth. And boy, he's really good in this day and age of couching his lies with a veneer of truth. It sounds good, but when you bite into it and begin to live by it, you find out, oh my gosh, what have I done? The Bible warns us, for instance, to beware of spiritual counterfeits. We are to beware of false messiahs. We are to beware of false apostles and false ministers and false gospels and false prophets and false doctrines and false miracles. Look these verses up for yourself. The Bible is filled with warnings of counterfeits that are out there waiting to trap us, waiting to lead us into bondage. We need discernment. We need to learn to think biblically because the enemy is an accomplished liar and he's a master counterfeiter. And he can, listen, he can produce people who look very much like real believers and really good Bible teachers. I'm not going to name names. I'm tempted to, but I don't want to root up the wheat when I start rooting up the weeds. These guys look good. They sound good. They speak Christian lingo. They wear Christian t-shirts. 
They attend Christian churches. They sing Christian songs. They lead Christian ministries. They attend Christian conferences. They even have tremendous Christian experiences and testimonies that they'll tell you about. But Jesus warns us, look this passage of Scripture up, Jesus warns us in Matthew 7 that some of these pretenders, some of these counterfeiters will even prophesy. They will cast out demons in the name of Jesus and they will perform miracles in His name. But they're fakes. They're counterfeiters. They don't know Christ and Christ doesn't know them either. Be on guard. Be on guard. Develop discernment. Learn to think biblically. If you haven't learned to think biblically yet, get close to people who seem to be further along the path toward biblical discernment than you are and listen carefully and take their counsel in before you buy into something. Hook, line, and sinker and find yourself going further than you ever thought you'd go, doing things you said you'd never do, believing things you thought you'd never believe. How do you recognize counterfeit? How do you recognize something that's counterfeit? How can we develop discernment? How do we learn to think biblically? Those are important questions for us in this day and age. The answer is simple. It's a real simple answer. But man, is it so demanding. It will require time. It will require accountability. It will require effort. It's simple. The answer is simple. In order to learn to think biblically, you've got to study the... Oh man... Come on, man. There's got to be an easier way than that. It's simple, isn't it? If you want to learn to think biblically, you've got to study the Bible. Man, I want to, I want to learn to think like Jesus did. When's the last time you checked the Word? Ah, you know, that's boring. I can't get anything out of it. Well, part of the reason you don't think like Christ is because you've never opened the Bible. You think you know what it says, and you've taken so-and-so's Word for it, Please never take my word for anything. I want you to check me out. I want you to, to learn to study the Bible for yourself. I want you to read it, study it, know it, memorize it, meditate on it. I want you to do that for yourself. Don't take what I have to say about it. I think I'm right. And I check what I believe with a lot of other guys that I respect to make sure that I'm in line with what they say. But you know what? We might be off track a little bit. You need to check it out for yourself. You need to check it out for yourself. We need, if you're going to learn to think biblically, you've got to study the Bible. And I, I want to say this. I want, uh, please, listen to what I have to say. We have to study the Bible. Not just for its devotional content to make us feel better. You know that little verse you read? little blurb that comes after it, a paragraph or two? That's not studying the Bible. That's a devotion that will help you feel better about where you're at with God and about what God wants to do. Those are, those are wonderful. And I hope that you do that every day. But don't just read the Bible to feel better. And don't just read the Bible for its practical content to make your life better. And that's okay. The Bible has lots of advice to give us, lots of counsel, lots of principles to live by. I get that. I read the Bible and look for those principles myself. The book of Proverbs. How many of you go through the Proverbs all the time? I mean, you find yourself, some people read the really a chapter of Proverbs every day kind of thing. Constantly. 
It's a great source of advice to make your life better. But you've got to go deeper than that. It's not just to make you feel better. Not just to make you, your life better. You need to study the Bible so you can know it better. Study it doctrinally. Get into the teachings of the Bible. Who is God? Who am I? What has God done for me? Who is Christ Jesus? How has God revealed Himself to us? Why do Christians fail? What is sin? How does temptation work? Study the Bible to know its doctrines, its teachings, about the really important questions that we often are faced with. And the reason I say this, and it's come to light recently, and I hope that you're aware of some of what's taking place in our world today. The church has recently suffered the loss of some of its highest profile leaders. You may have seen some of this on your Facebook news feeds. Guys like Joshua Harris, have you heard that name before? Marty Campbell, who was a songwriter for Hillsong. Marty Sampson, excuse me. Marty Sampson. There are a number of others that I could you know, bring to your attention, but those two in particular, the last couple of weeks, have been very influential in the body of Christ for a number of years now. And the last couple of weeks, they have come out and basically renounced the faith. They turned away from Christianity. And they've made public pronouncements about that. And it's caused a lot of people to wonder about the validity, the veracity of Christianity. Is it true? If it's true, why are these guys backing off of it? Why are these guys turning away from it? If it's true. And they've stated publicly on their Facebook pages, through their Instagram, whatever means of communication they had, these guys in particular have stated that they've lost their faith, they question everything they've believed, everything they've done, and they've said publicly, we no longer, I no longer consider myself a Christian. If you haven't read about them, Yet, I'm surprised, because it's been everywhere. Well, in response, this Christian rocker guy that I happen to know named John Cooper. How many of you read John Cooper's response to that? I love me some John Cooper. I love Skillet anyway. I had the opportunity to spend some time with this guy several years ago, about 20 years ago now, as we set up for a concert that Skillet did for us. And he was a man of God back then. Thank God, 20 years later, he's still a man of God, still standing for Christ. He, he responded to, not necessarily to these guys personally, but to this phenomenon we're seeing as people fall away from Christ, who once were so influential in the church. He started by saying this. I want you to listen carefully to what he said. I'm about to, to, to quote extensively from his, his, uh, his editorial. He started by saying we should not be looking to 20-year-old worship singers as our source of truth. Just because a guy wears skinny jeans and has got funny hair and a guitar in his hand doesn't make him a source of truth. He said we have a church culture. Listen to me. This is an indictment of us. We have a church culture that learns its truth about God from modern worship songs rather than the teachings of God's Word. He concludes by saying this, and this is really the, uh, the part of his response that I wanted to read to you, and I want you to follow along with me up here because, man, this is where we're at. We need to develop discernment if we're going to be able to face and overcome the opposition that lies, that, that works so hard against us. He said this, he said, it's time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the Word. I should have gotten a big amen right there. 
It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the Word and to value the teaching of the Word. We need to value truth over feeling. Can I get an amen? Truth over emotion. And what we are seeing now is is a result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. Why? Because the people following them have no discernment at all. Don't let that be said of us. He goes on to say, Is it any wonder that some of our disavowed Christian leaders are letting go of the absolute truth of the Bible and subsequently their lives are falling apart? Fruit. Remember fruit? Further and further they are sinking in the sea all the while shouting, Now I've found the truth! Follow me! They're just telling people, Don't follow me anymore here. Follow me here. Does that make sense to you? It didn't make sense to me either when I read it. Brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, pastors, teachers, worship leaders, influencers, I implore you, please, please, in your search for relevancy for the Gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's Word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths but rather let us hold on even tighter to the anchor of the living Word of God. For He changes not. He changes not. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the Word of our God stands forever. Listen, we've got to develop discernment in this day and age where so many are so easily distracted, discouraged, disillusioned. Because they don't know the truth. Never let that be said of you. Know the Bible. Not just in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a devotional kind of way. Not just in a practical kind of way. Know the Bible. What it says. What it means. In its proper context for crying out loud. Know the Bible. That's the truth. That's the foundation for your life. Not your feelings. Can I tell you something? Some days I don't feel like I'm saved. <gasps> I have bad days too. And I feel like God's a million miles away from me. But I will not rest my life on my feelings. If I do, I am setting myself up for failure. I rest my life on what God has clearly said in His Word about my relationship with Him. He said, I love you with an everlasting love. And my mercies are made new to you every day. And I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm going to rest my life on God's truth. Let my feelings come and go, go up, go down. I don't care. I'm not going to get too high. I'm not going to get too low. I'm going to try to stay steady because the foundation of my life is built on God's sure word. We have got to develop discernment, guys. We've got to study the Bible. That's why we encourage you to get... That's why we got all those books on the back table to help you learn how to study the Word. That's why we do our Wednesday nights. That's why we have our one another groups. That's why we're starting all these kids programs. We want to know the truth. Whew, let me move on. In this day of counterfeit and deception, we need to develop discipline. The discipline of discernment. 
We need to know the Word of God. Third, confront appropriately. Expect opposition, develop discernment, and as followers of Christ Jesus, with an enemy who's actively engaged to hinder the work of God in us and through us, when we face that opposition, we have to learn to confront appropriately. Not through a rant on Facebook. Doesn't generally do much good. Okay. The owner of the field knew that there were weeds in his field. You think Jesus knows that the devil is pretty much having his way in the world around us today? I mean, God's in control, we understand that. But he is permitting the devil to do some things today, and you're scratching your head thinking, what in the world, God? Why would you let him? You think Jesus is unaware of what's going on? You think he's unaware of what you face? No, he knows exactly what you're going through. The owner of the field knew that those weeds would poison his crop. But the owner of the field also knew that an inappropriate action would do more damage to the crop than good. Listen to me carefully. Does that mean that we should just sit by on the sidelines and let the world around us go to hell? Thank you. Out of the mouths of babes. You're absolutely right, Jacob. No. Should we boldly stand for truth in an age of compromise? Absolutely. Of course we should. That's why Christ has raised us up in this moment and time to take stands for truth in an age of compromise. Should we speak out against injustice and immorality? Should we work to overcome it? Absolutely. Again, this is why the Lord has raised us up for such a time as this. So that we can work against all the injustice and immorality and all that's going on around us. We need to overcome these evil works with the power of God. Absolutely, we're here for that reason. Should we point out doctrinal errors and hypocrisy and abuse of scriptural authority in the church? Of course we should. We ought to be able to point those things out and as brothers and sisters, I ought to be able to look at you and say, man, you're getting a little off track here in this particular area of thought. You're thinking this about God, but what, the, what does the Bible say here? Try to bring every... It's, it's a constant work in progress. There's a, there's a healthy debate about what God has said in His Word that takes place among the brothers and sisters within the family, but then there are unhealthy debates as well. Can I get an amen? Do you know back in the early days of the Reformation, they were actually drowning people who believed in immersion baptism rather than infant baptism. Did you know that? Calvin drowned a couple of people because they didn't believe in Infant baptism, but that's a little crazy. That's a little, you know, cross the line. That's inappropriate confrontation, if you will. Well, we do the same kind of things, I'm afraid, here, where we, we, we get caught up in what the Bible calls foolish arguments that really don't mean anything. I call them family squabbles, but they can get really ugly really fast. If I were to begin to talk today or ask questions today about the end times, some of you guys in this room, you might be 
uh, pre-trib kind of people that believe Jesus is going to come back before the tribulation. Some of you might be mid-trib kind of people. You think Jesus is going to come uh, again midway through the tribulation. Others are post-trib. You, get, you, you believe that we're going to go through the whole tribulation period before Jesus... And I'm telling you, we could get an argument started, boom, just like that if I wanted to get, get it started. And I could pour a little gasoline on it, you know, and really... But would that serve any good purpose? No. Why? Because we're looking ahead at something that hasn't even happened yet. We're all speculating, really, if you, truth be told, about what could happen, not what has happened. Anyway, we need to learn to confront appropriately. We will confront sin. We will confront hypocrisy. We will confront injustice and immorality. We've been raised up for such a time as this. But we should never confront in mean and vicious ways. Instead, instead we confront wrongdoing gently and humbly. We should never confront our enemies in hateful or violent ways. We confront with love and kindness. Even if we have to withdraw from fellowship with other Christian groups because we disagree with their doctrines or practices, and sometimes you have to do this, we will not do it. We, we should not confront those groups without become, uh, we shouldn't confront by becoming abusive and accusatory and condemning. Look, Romans 12 puts it so simply. I love Romans chapter 12. It really provides a template for how we're to live as followers of Christ. Romans 12 says this, when it comes to confronting opposition appropriately. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Just because they call you a name on Facebook does not give you permission to call them a name in response. Come on. I watch some of those dialogues take place on Facebook and I am appalled at how personal and ugly and hateful the responses are that come from Christian brothers and sisters. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I want to remind you that Paul was writing to a group of people that were being hounded and persecuted for their faith. They were being strapped to poles, covered with tar, and lit on fire to serve as torture uh, to serve as torches at Caesar's night parties. If it is possible, let me read that read that sentence in its context. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, while they're strapping you down, covering you with tar, and lighting you on fire, live at peace with everyone. But they called me a name on Facebook. Let it go, man. <laughs> but you don't understand. You don't understand how hateful they can be toward me at work. Dude, show a little grace. Don't get caught up in all that unnecessary back and forth. Don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. Let the Lord have it. You remain humble. You remain kind. You remain gentle. You remain soft-spoken. Proverbs, a soft-spoken answer turns away 
wrath. Who knows what God will do if you live in obedience to Him in the moment instead of giving in to your flesh and responding hatefully. Does this make sense? We want to, we, we're, we're guilty of trying to take things in our own hands. If I don't stand up for God, ain't nobody going to stand up for God. I think God can pretty much take care of His own enemies. Thank you very much. He doesn't need my help. Let me just say this. If the devil can provoke you into confronting the opposition in your life in a sinful way, who wins? He does. He does. The only way to gain victory in any situation where you're facing opposition is to face that opposition Christ's way. In obedience. Oh, it may not feel good in the moment. What feels good in the moment is to scream back. But what happens is, you might seem to have lost that battle. You're going to end up winning the war. The one that refuses to scream back is the one that controls that situation. The one that refuses to get caught up in the name calling is the one that controls that relationship. It's another message for another day. Listen, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Remember that? We read that a couple of, several minutes ago. Let's never forget it's God that changes hearts. It's God that changes hearts. And we need to trust Him and His ways rather than our own if we want to change the hearts of the opposition that stands in our way. If we take things into our own hands, we're going to do more harm to the kingdom of God than good. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in workplaces. People taking things into their own hands. Confronting in inappropriate ways. And they not only damage the relationship they might have had with the person, but they damage other relationships with other people in that same office, in that same setting, whether it's in the church or otherwise. As we confront sin and immorality, as we confront hypocrisy and heresy, we're going to confront, and you ought to confront, with love and truth and humility. The weapons we fight with, the Bible says, are not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We're going to fight God's way. We're going to confront opposition appropriately, His way, so that God can continue the work He started in us, so that God can continue to use us to advance His work through us. All right, fourth. <laughs> I haven't lost yet, have I? I hope that you see how this applies to your life. Fourth. Expect opposition. What's the second one? Develop discernment. What's the third one? Confront appropriately. This is what these are instructions we're being given by the King of Kings. I hope you're listening. The fourth one is this. Make sure of your own salvation. Make sure of your own salvation. You know, the owner could have sent his workers into the fields to weed out the weeds 
before the harvest time came, but instead the owner chose to delay separating the weeds from the wheat because he had no intention of harming the wheat and tearing out the weeds, right? He also had no, listen to me, he also had no intention of leaving the weeds in the wheat forever. He delayed temporarily, but it was a temporary delay. You get that? There was coming a day where the weed and the wheat, the weeds and the wheat, were going to be separated. And it was on the day he appointed at the moment of harvest. In verses 40 through 43, it says this As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You see, people make a deadly mistake when they think, when they take God's restraint as His approval. Let me say that again. I want you to understand that. You make a deadly mistake when you take God's delay, His restraint, as His approval. Don't ever make that mistake. Don't ever make that mistake. There's a day coming when God will separate the weed from the wheat, the goats from the sheep, the sinners from the saints. And that day of judgment will come at His appointed time, at just the right time when the harvest is fully ready. That day is coming. When that day will be, none of us know. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It might be next year. I think I've got 10 good years left in ministry in my, in, in my, in my life and body. Personally, I don't believe I'll be here long enough to exhaust all of my physical resources before the Lord comes back. I think He's coming back that quickly. But if He tarries, if the Lord chooses to delay beyond that 10 years, I'm still going to be ready for Him to come every moment of every day. It's coming. There's a day of separation that's coming. When that day will be, none of us knows. But He does. He does. And all we know is this. The day of judgment is coming. Uh, Listen, people don't like talking about judgment and hell in this culture. They don't like talking about it. I think instinctively we know it's coming. We just would rather live in denial. I'd rather not talk about that. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us nervous. But well, but but Jesus talked about them all the time. You cannot read the Gospels without seeing how often Jesus warned the people listening to him that there is a judgment coming, and following that, heaven or hell. As a matter of fact, a good number of his parables are focused on the certainty of judgment and the reality of hell. And we're going to be talking about a lot of them here as we go through these these parables. So there's no denying. Jesus didn't live in denial about heaven and hell and judgment that's coming. There's no denying that Jesus knew about it, that He believed in it, because He warned against the absolute reality of judgment and hell. So what should we do? And and this parable being a, a great example of it. What should we do in the light of this clear teaching? 
How do we respond to it? Here's, here's the way I, the only reasonable response in my mind is this. In light of this clear teaching about a day of judgment that's coming, a day where the wheat will be separated from the weeds. Later on, we'll hear about goats being separated, separated from sheep. In light of this clear teaching of Christ that a day is coming, the only reasonable response I can get out of this is that I need to make sure that I am really trusting Christ for my salvation. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. I need to make sure of my own salvation. I need to stop pointing my fingers at you guys, and I need to stop and look in the mirror and say, what about you, Mark? Mirror, what about you? Kalen, what about you, Chris? Sean? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? You guys got real quiet. Are you sure? I'm telling you, Paul wasn't blowing smoke when he said in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith because the day of judgment is coming. The day of separation. Peter said it himself in 2 Peter 1.10. He said, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and your election sure. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? You see, I, I told you last week that Jesus didn't play when He gave us these parables. He used parables in order to probe inside us to see whether or not we really understand the Gospel. He taught in parables to help us see whether or not the Gospel was really transforming our lives. And this parable of the weeds makes it so clear, tells us in no uncertain terms, if we embrace this Gospel, it puts us right smack dab in the middle of a battlefield, not a playground. It tells us there will be constant spiritual battles going on inside of our hearts and minds. It tells us to expect opposition as we live for the Lord and, 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 and seek to serve the Lord in the world we live in. It tells us that we ought to discipline ourselves to study the Word so we can discern, we can live in discernment, knowing biblical truth and be able to recognize the enemy's counterfeits. And I'm telling you, many people I know are attending church every Sunday morning and they're living by a counterfeit gospel that says if I just do good things, if I just live a good life, I'm okay. <laughs> And you're not. That's not the gospel. The gospel says repent and believe. Turn your back on sin and believe in Christ alone to save you. A lot of us are living by counterfeits. We've listened to counterfeit preachers. We've listened to counterfeit ministers. We have followed these counterfeit miracles and they have led us down a path that's taken us to a counterfeit gospel and we're living 
thinking we're okay, what a horrible place to be, to think everything's good, only to find out on that day, that day, the day of separation, I've been trusting in a false Messiah, believing a false gospel, and it's led me down a path I never expected. See, I think this, this parable is really intended to remind all of us that we need to make sure of our own salvation so that we'll be ready when the day of judgment comes. Are you ready? Are you Listen, I've been convicted all week by this thing. Don't feel bad because some of you may feel convicted right now. That's a good thing. Conviction's not a bad thing. You understand that? Condemnation pushes you away from God. Conviction draws you to God. And some of you, I can see it in your faces right now, you're being drawn to God right now. Because you realize you've been putting your faith in some places that didn't belong. You've been putting your trust in people and things that didn't deserve your trust. Are you sure you're ready? Let me finish it up. Mikey, you want to come back? Are you sure you're ready? Are you sure you're saved? And some of you might be asking, Pastor Moore, how can I be sure? What should I look for? What, how can I know? You, you, you said the Bible said that we're to, to test ourselves, to examine our faith, to see whether or not we're in the... Okay, what is it? What, is, what does that mean? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I, I want you to carefully consider these questions and how you would answer them. Okay? Just look at this... Three simple little questions. And consider them. Let the Holy Spirit search your heart. Give Him access. Every nook and cranny of your mind and heart and life. First, are you trusting Christ alone as your Savior? Ask yourself that question. Spirit of God, I come to you and I ask you for insight. Am I trusting Christ Jesus alone as my Savior? Or am I trusting my religious background and my moral lifestyle, my knowledge of the Bible, my, my knowledge of... Am, am, am I trusting some kind of past decision I made when I was a little girl at, at kids' camp? Or a decision I made a couple of years ago to be baptized? Am I trusting in that to save me? Or am I trusting in Christ Jesus alone who died for me on the cross as my substitute for my sin and rose again on the third day to make me right with God, who or what am I really trusting in today? The second question you ought to ask yourself is this. Am I obeying Christ Jesus as the Lord of my life? Have I trusted Him as Savior, but have I, am I making Him my Lord? Does my disobedience and sin even bother me? Or do I just blow through that, taking His grace for granted? Do I, do I seek to submit every area of my life to His authority? Do I obey His Word? Or again, do I just blow by that, taking His love for me for granted? In the kingdom of God, Obedience to the king is equivalent 
to love for the king. You get that? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In the kingdom of God, if the gospel has taken its roots and is growing in your life, you're becoming more and more and more aware of this truth. That if I say I love the king, then I must also obey him with my life. Am I trusting in Christ alone as my Savior? Am I obeying Christ Jesus as my Lord? And a third great question to ask yourself as you permit the Holy Spirit to search your heart is this, am I showing the love of God to others? Am I showing the love of God to others? Are the fruit of His Spirit on display in my relationships with others? In all of my, not just in your, with your friends and family, Jesus said to love your enemies too, right? In your relationships with the people in your life, do they see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in that relationship? Love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control even in your conflicts, even when you are confronting the opposition in your life, are the fruit of the Spirit on display. Can the people in your life see Jesus in you? Three simple questions. that with the help of the Holy Spirit, help you to answer the question, am I ready? Am I ready? Is Christ Jesus alone my, my Savior? Is Christ Jesus my Lord? Can people see Jesus in me? You know, I can't answer those questions for you. I can only answer them for myself. And I will answer out loud for you the way the Holy Spirit's been speaking to my heart this week. He reminds me of how imperfect I am and how far short of His glory I still fall. But He reminds me that His grace is enough and that I am to trust in His grace and in His mercy. He will continue to work out His great salvation in me so that on that day, I'll be ready too. Some days I don't feel like I'm ready. But it's not about the way I feel. It's about what God has said. But I want you to be ready for that day should it come.